This is Adam Lightman Bailey, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Jennifer Rodarte with Compass, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hey, this is Lane Johnson representing Compass and Aspen, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hello, this is Steve, and we're with Weidler Brothers of Compass in the D.C. metro area, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Naomi Klein representing the Compass Office in Beverly Hills, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What up, everybody? This is Chef Jack Harris of the uh, Talk Team Podcast. This is Jade with the Jessica Northrup team from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. Thank you for being a loyal subscriber and listener, as always. We are past 2,300 streams, so I'm extremely grateful for your uh, time and attention and uh, and loyalty to this podcast platform. Uh, today, I have one of the most influential people in New York City real estate and actually in, in, on a national level as well, uh, Amir Karangi. Amir is the founder of The Real Deal, as many of you may know. Real Deal is a media publication events company with a focus on covering residential and commercial real estate news, politics, and history of the New York City, South Florida, Chicago, LA, and the tri-state markets. It's also important to note that since the pandemic, the real deals traffic on the web had gone up 40%. So they're getting about 4.2 million visitors per month, uh, 2.8 million unique clicks. So uh, congratulations on that. They've expanded significantly uh, as far as their digital footprint is concerned. Amir was born in Tehran, Iran, uh, where his family left after the Islamic Revolution as a political refugee, and his family spent time in Paris and Madrid before settling down in the Washington, D.C. area. Amir started the real deal out of his Brooklyn apartment almost 20 years ago, shortly before he was joined by his editor-in-chief, currently as well, Stuart Elliott. The real deal first hit the map when... A great story. Uh, Donald Trump responded to an article from a previous issue by ripping out the page in handwriting... Why all the anger, Stuart? Love the Donald to your Brooklyn office. I guess it was your Brooklyn apartment or your office. My house, yeah. Your house, yeah. Uh, so that was in response to article number two or issue number two of the real deal. Uh, and the article covered Donald Trump. He was not called a real developer by other quote unquote real developers prior to the launch of his reality TV show. So Amir has a very lengthy list of accolades and mentions. Just to name a few, uh, he was listed in the New York Observer's Power 100 list of the most powerful people in the New York real estate in 2013. Inman News named Amir as one of the 100, one of the, uh, one of the 100 most powerful or influential real estate leaders in the media category. And in 2012, he was named Entrepreneur of the Year by the YJP. YJP is the Young Jewish Professionals Association. So I could go on forever. Uh, I could talk about your events. I could talk about all the things you've did. You've did. I've seen personally. Um, it will go on forever. But since here's a very, he's a very busy man, I just want to. We'll just jump into it. Uh, Amir, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. I just want to point out something that you know when I was uh, named one of the most uh, one of the one hundred most influential people in uh, New York. I just want to point out that I was number ninety nine. Okay. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> All right, so, so take it with some salt. But uh, also, uh, 
when I was given the YJP award, it's the young Jewish professionals. And I always feel like I have to correct people in that I'm not Jewish, you know? So it was, I, I was not young and I was not Jewish. So I didn't understand how I, I, I got uh, voted into. Well, well age is just a number and young is subjective over objective. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. And you looked up. So I wanted to clarify that stuff before I was, uh, you know, given accolades that, uh, you know, don't exactly reflect who I am. <laughs> You know, what a, um, you know, in your come up, one of my favorite stories is you, you, you actually discussed this live in, in, I, in an old TRD event that I attended was the Donald Trump, um, the, 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 your rise to fame was actually Donald Trump responding to your article. You know, it, how, did, how did the real deal become so popular so quickly after issue number two that Trump was already reading your articles? Right. He was a very good with uh, like any he was very good with his clippings. Anything that mentioned <laughs> at the time he had uh, from my count, he had six uh, assistants. So like you go to the Trump organization, there's an entire floor that's uh, just for licensing. So there was an entire floor with his lawyers and licensing. They just focus on licensing the Trump brand. Right. And then you do his office floor and the, his office floor is where his sons and him have their office and the, you know, the labyrinth of uh, assistants that sort of right. support them. And they do a lot of clippings and stuff. And when the real deal came out, obviously, I thought the name was so brilliant that if I didn't make sure everybody in the city who needed to get it got it, that somebody would take it and run with it. This was before the Facebook or social media or like really the internet blowing up. Yeah. This was during the AOL years. So, uh, you know, I made sure that Trump got it. And in the second issue, we do this uh, uh, article that none of the real New York City families consider Trump to be, uh, you know, right. a developer. Yeah. They think he's sort of a fraud and he gives them a bad name because, sure. you know, they, they consider themselves to be very prestigious and he was very flashy. And he, uh, yeah, he rips up that page and with a big black magic marker, which he's very well known to do, he, you know, he writes that note and has it hand delivered to my apartment in Crown Heights, right? So I was in Crown Heights at the time. Yeah. And he has a handle over. So how does, because my office address was this mailbox on Fifth Avenue. It was like 231 Fifth uh -huh. Avenue. Uh -huh. Everybody had a mailbox there. Yeah. And we were like, wow, this guy is good, man. I mean, he, nobody knows my house is Don't here. Don't mess with him. <laughs> like, All right, probably, you have to hire a private investigator or somebody to yeah. find your house. I mean, that's pretty, that's a pretty incredible. That's an incredible story. We, I was like, this is a great opportunity. We have an end. He's interested in us. Obviously, he's reading it. Let's, yeah. let's reach out to him. So we reach out to him. We're like, we'd love to do an interview with you. And he's like, yeah, yeah absolutely. I love it. Uh, you know, come and do an interview. And so we have him on the fourth issue of The Real Deal is uh, Donald oh, Trump. Page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that after that, we had a rocky relationship up and down, but I was always friendly with the kids and stuff. And they always gave us tips and stuff. They loved the real deal. So that was sure. good. Sure. Yeah, actually, that's, that's a great thing you brought up, rocky relationships. That's something that I want to go over with you a little later. But, you know, before we dive into things, when we scheduled this podcast, and thanks for coming on to agree with me, but when we scheduled it, it, um, it this was it, this happened, the scheduling happened way before the riots and, you know, the, the protesting and the whole movement that's happening. So I think since it's such a big topic right now, I, I think it would be rude to just gloss over that and maybe just discuss that just for a few minutes. Um, you actually, uh, your Twitter video, uh, it, I don't know how viral it went, but I saw it on other accounts. Yeah, was, it had like 90,000 views. Quite in, interesting. Yeah, quite interesting. Um, it, was uh, Saturday, it was Saturday night. It had, things hadn't gotten violent yet. So it was Saturday night was the first right. night. And I was at a dinner party. Yeah. During quarantine, which is a bad thing. Anyways, so we're at a dinner gathering. 
in Soho. And uh, all of a sudden we hear a, a glass breaking. And I look out the window and they have these big windows facing Green Street. And yeah. I look at the window and I see people like breaking into, running away with, uh, you know, stuff in their hands and running down the street. And then I see people uh, like breaking into residential lobbies. You, you know, it's one thing when the people break into stores and which is a horrible thing. And I don't support that in any way or shape. I don't care what happens. That's not what you do. But, uh, but, when they started breaking into residential lobbies, I was like, oh man, that, that's a scary feeling. You know, like it, it, it's one thing to go into a store and take the TV or something. It's another thing to break up, coming to, uh, you know, th that's like the stuff that happened in World War II and during the Iranian revolution, which I remember very well because, you know, people came into our house. So that's a very scary feeling. That's enough for people to be like, I don't need to wait for the market to bounce or do this or that. I'm out of here. It's not yeah. worth it. It's, uh, you know, there's a, but that's what happened with our family. And it's the same family, the, the family I went to have dinner with, very well-to-do family. They packed up the next day, Sunday, they uh, rented a house. They went to Nantucket for three days, and now they rented a house for the rest of the summer until things cooled down. Mm -hmm. But they left New York. And those are the things that makes people leave, you know? And it's, uh, it's terrible because there is going to be an exodus in New York City. Yeah, when, when safety when safety becomes an issue, then the, then money becomes irrelevant, or decisions are to first protect yourself. There was a there was a developer named Tesla. Yeah, it's like Tesla. I think yeah, a lot sure. of mm -hmm. And you know, we were talking one time. I was like, man, you're you're one of the largest diamond uh, uh, polishers and cutters in the world. That's yeah. a significant business, right? I was like, why did you leave all of that to come to uh, New to New York? He was like. Uh, you know, there was a point where there was another person that worked for me or uh, I knew or was a relative of mine who hadn't been robbed, murdered or like assaulted in some way. He was like, I have 22 kids and grandkids. He was like, I was not going to wait until something happened to them because nothing is worth that. Yeah. And he sold everything he had, 50 cents on the dollar, moved to New York, you know, 50 cents on the dollar and started like doing development. And right. But now he's a developer of Madison Avenue. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, so... So a lot of people, I guess these riots are happening. It's an issue. And I think it's because it's hard because everybody's feeling a lot and people are acting off of emotion, at, at least at the moment, and probably rightfully so. Not right as far as the riots are concerned, but the protests. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we, I want to discuss with you, you know, the movement that we're seeing right now. You know, what are your thoughts on these riots that are happening in New York City and obviously across the United States? And how does how do you think the U.S. comes out of the of the black you know the Black Lives Matter movement uh, as we head into the future? Oh, and that's a real political question. You get me into a lot of trouble for that. I've been talking to a lot of city officials in the last uh, few days, especially, sure. Sure. and these are the numbers I hear. You have about um, thirty thousand police in New York City enforcing the rule of law on eight and a half million people, right? Yeah. And then that's a tough job. At Amazon, if one manager has more than seven people under them, they hire another manager to manage the overflow, right? That's the proper way to do it according to Amazon, which is one of the most successful companies in the world. So now you have 30,000 people trying to manage the rule of law on eight and a half million people. And you see what happens when the rule of law is not here. It looks like an apocalypse out there. There's shit's being torn apart, things are being burned, and it's tough. And now what we're doing is basically taking more resources away from these 30,000 people who are supposed to sort of maintain the rule of law, right? They're like, now you can't do this, you can't do that. 
I agree, those guys should not take advantage of their position and do horrible things, which is a horrible thing. But that happens in every organization. To take the entire NYPD and label them as a bad organization or like, a, you know, a, a corrupt a sort of a firm, it's the wrong thing to do because a lot of people who are police, most of them, 99.9% .9 of the police are good people. They go and become police because they want to do good. It's not because of the pay. Right? It's because they want to do good work. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. there's some things that happen that are terrible, that are tragic. And that stuff should be reduced more and more. And there should be limits put into place to you know, make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. But like right now, I feel like there's this whole anti-police thing going on. And uh, you know, uh, if it goes much further, we're going to get to a place where we're going to regret it. Because I mean, you have social media, you see what's happening. It's, uh, it's a terrible thing. It's yeah. a terrible thing. But look, what happened was, was devastating. These sometimes you you have these police that like really t uh, uh, they feel like they can do anything with their badge, and uh, that's a horrible thing too. Those are people who are abusing their power, right. and they nobody like that. It, it right. shouldn't be the police. They shouldn't be anyone. Like they should, all people like that should always be put into their place. You know, the, there are bad apples in every industry. Whether you're lawyers, bankers, Wall Street, you know, cops. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, there's just a couple few of them. Definitely does tend to ruin it for a lot of the good ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I was talking to the police captain of uh, uh, Brooklyn, and he was saying, look, in the last year across the country, uh, how many uh, police officers died in the line of duty, not off duty? There was, that, was, that was a different number. 89 right. police officers died in the line of duty, right? Okay. That's a, that's a terrible number, right? That's, that's, a, that's way when, higher than I thought, when yeah. You have, when you have that only 800,000 police uh, managing the rule of law and 350 million people in this country, it's uh, it's tough. It's a hard job. They they don't have the resources. They don't have the support, and they're being scrutinized at every turn. And look, you you get you carry a gun, you wear a badge. You, you there's a certain level of scrutiny that you do have to put up with, and uh, that, that comes with the job. And I think most of them know that, uh, but it's uh, you know it, it's uh, it's a tough place. I mean, I, Very. I feel like people are getting uh, into a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say anything bad. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no of course. And, and tacking onto that, you know, retail was already hit. If you think about it, just let's just talk about Manhattan. Retail was already hit. Amazon coming in, re online retailers coming in. It was already a very, very tough place to survive as a retailer with the high New York City rents and the taxes and the, and the escalation clause that are built in. And and it, it's very hard as a as an um, a operator of a retail store, whether it's a restaurant or some some sort of retail store, to survive. And then now... You know, you have this where your store may have been destroyed because of the riots or damaged because of the riots and the fire and the stealings and whatnot. Um, you know, th there's I think we all learned this in school, but there is something called the broken windows theory. It's a criminological theory that states that visible signs of crime, antisocial behavior, civil disorder can create an urban environment that actually further encourages more crime and disorder. Obviously, serious, serious crimes as well. Effect, right. That's right. And, and so it's something as small as a broken window, you see right. a broken window and you're like, well, maybe people don't care in this neighborhood. Let me break the other window. Hey, no one's in that building. Let me go squat in it. Oh, hey, no one's going to see this. Let me take somebody and rob them in there. Right. And then it's a cane effect and it comes down. Yeah. I mean, it's a real thing. And I you mean, think, you, do you think that, that, I mean, that was a problem in the New York city, the seventies, sixties of New York city. Do you think this is going to be an ongoing problem now that the businesses are going to be struggling to come back because it was already hard. COVID had already happened. People forgot that there was COVID. And then add to the fact this is salt in the wound as a retailer, 
you know, you, your stuff got destroyed or you just don't have the money to, to open back up again. I mean, the city is going to be filled up with broken windows and boarded up windows. I mean, do you think, you know, that theory stands to New York and that crime will likely go up? You have a, well, you have a, well, crime is going to go up because of uh, several different things. Uh, bail reform. Bail reform, um, that's big. Yeah. And then you're going to have uh, police who are going to be scared to do anything. I mean, right now, I went to, uh, to the protest the other night because just as a journalist, I, I wanted to be there. Sure. And, uh, you know, the police were just standing their ground. They were like, let, let them loot. We're not going to do it because anything we do right now, it, we're going to just get blamed for it. Yeah, so, yeah, cell phone and, videoed and blamed for it, yeah. yeah exactly. So they're like, forget it. Let them do it. So they were just standing by. They were like, we're going to protect the police station. That's it. And they were literally watching right across the street, people going into this uh, Lululemon or the other one, uh, some athletic leisure store. And they were literally watching people just, you know, going into that store, taking stuff out. And they didn't do anything. You know, they were just watching. They were like, let and I don't know if that's orders from up top, you know, from the mayor or the governor. I don't think it's from the governor, but it's uh it's it's a bad state for the police to be in. And again, you have a city of eight and a half million people. As soon as you, those people realize that there is no rule of law, if what you have outside happening at night is gonna happen during the day. And stealing stuff is one thing, but next thing you know, it's gonna be some, your home's getting robbed. Next thing you know, somebody you know is gonna get assaulted. And then what? And then we're going to be like, oh, no, we made a mistake. We want the, we should give the police more access and more, uh, you know, liberties. Uh, yeah. yeah. But th that's eventually what's going to, that's, those are the chain of effects that happens. Right now, we don't care if Hermes gets busted into. I mean, we do, but the people are like, oh, screw it. They're a big corporation. They can afford to sell a few more Birkin bags. But, you know, then it's going to come to your house and then it's going to affect your family. And then, you know, it's, one thing after another after another. Yeah, yeah again. Guys who are okay with the mindset that they can break into a store and take whatever they want in the middle of the night, you know, it, it, that thinking is not too far away from, hey, here's a woman I really like. Let me jump on her, you know, so. When you were recording the video on Green Sheet, did you feel personally threatened or, or, or in danger? I know there was somebody coming up to you saying, hey, don't record this, don't record this. And I think I, right. I heard the exchange. I thought they were, you know, they seemed like punks to me, but like, that was a bad uh, state. You know, I was in a, I didn't like what I was seeing and I, yeah. I didn't feel like those people were New Yorkers. And that's and what you said. That was New your quote. Well, what made you think they were New Yorkers? Well, for one, I've never had more people ask me for directions ever before in New York. Oh, I've been in New York oh, oh, oh. for 21 years and people are, and hey, which way is Sixth Avenue? The Sixth Avenue oh, is one corner. I mean, I don't know that. Which way is South? Which way? So like, that gives me a sense that they're like, I mean, Manhattan is a grid, like, you know, you're, it's if not you're that hard, yeah. in a pretty good sense. Yeah. But and then the other thing was, I just don't think New Yorkers, they're, they're very, uh, they, they love the city. It's a hard city. It's a tough city to be in. And yeah. the people who live here, they know how hard and tough it is. And they resist and they still stay here. They pay high taxes. They sit through the commutes. They, it's a tough thing to do. So very tough. there's a love there. You know, they don't, they don't just walk away. They don't just burn it, you know. So exactly. I think exactly. people who came here to just trash it. I, I don't know a single New Yorker who would do that. Yeah, no, that, that, that. I mean, you want to record it, and that's the whole Antifa message. If you go on Reddit, you see, like, don't allow people to record it. The other, on Monday, I was at a protest, and they took this guy's camera, and expensive camera with the whole bodysuit and stuff. Oh, with the gimbal, yeah. Because they were taping uh, the, you know, the, the, they were trashing uh, the store, and they took the guy's camera and smashed it into, uh, the, I mean, it was a significant camera, you know. And uh, you know they don't want any evidence of it, right? Right. And if, yeah. I feel like protesters want real protesters want all the footage that they can get out there, right? Real protesters want the entire world to see it and the message to get out there. 
these guys, they don't want any recordings of it. They don't want anybody to see it. They just want to be able to take and, you know, burn. And, just, and also, just, yeah, just seek and destroy. Yeah. And exactly. As much havoc as possible. Yeah. Now I, I get why. I get your, your thoughts behind why you actually said these people are New Yorkers. But, um, yeah, <laughs> it's a really, really tough state. Uh, just switch some topics and pivot here a little bit. But, you know, I, I don't know if you remember what COVID-19 was. <laughs> and a lot of people kind of just stopped talking about it. But it's such an interesting time for real estate right now. On one hand, you know, we have COVID taking over New York City as the epicenter of the virus, shutting down, obviously, all the stores and the businesses. Uh, I think we were going, going on about week 12 now. And then prior to that, we had legislators talking about why there is even for-profit housing, you know, very socialist, very Marxist point of view. You had Amazon, we just, just talked about, and all the retailers kind of destroying the brick-and-mortar stores, which were already struggling prior to the pandemic. And on top of that, you know, who knows how long these current riots will come back, will last. You know, is it going to come back again? Is it going to be just as bad? I mean, it's a safety issue. It's a health issue. It's a political issue. Just a crazy time in real estate. Yeah, I think... You know, I, I don't know what your thoughts on this, but, you know, New York is, is going to have a very, very long recovery. I, I had a Chris Okada, who you know, uh, on as a guest last week, and he thinks it's going to be a very, very flat, wide V-shaped type recovery. Um, you know, I just talked to you about the uh, the broken window theory. You know, retailers, it's going to take a long time for it to come back. Uh, how long do you personally think it will be for New York City to recover from all of this and you talk to a lot of influential people in the industry, and what are they saying? So, you know, one of the greatest signs of success for a city is population growth. If the population of the city goes up, it means that you have a successful city. Well, yeah. so for, for the population of the city, for New York City to come down, you know, when we talk about an exodus, we're not talking about, you know, half the city leaving. If you talk about 5%, right? You're in real estate, you know, if the building has 10% vacancy, that's Huge. significant. Huge. Huge. What do you do? What can, how do I fix this? I can't pay my mortgage or whatever the situation is. Sure. Well, it's a significant thing. So all of this chain effect of things, especially what happened in the last few days, there will be a, I mean, there will be an exodus. And by exodus, I don't mean half the people leaving, but all you need is 5% of the people to not feel safe here yeah. and leave. And then you, you, you're going to feel the effects of it. Real estate's going to feel the effects of it. Of course. In Miami last week, should have been quarantining, but I had to go to Miami last week. And my friend was telling me that they have more New Yorkers coming down to Miami than ever before. Wow. He said that COVID thing was the best thing that happened to Miami because now right. you have all these tri-state people coming to Miami. I went to look at a house in Westchester in Pound Ridge, uh, just like a weekend place. And the woman, before I could tell her where I'm from, she was like, Oh, you're from Manhattan. I was like, oh, how, how can you tell? She was like, I have six clients right now. They all came into me in the last three weeks. They're all from Manhattan. They're not sure. in a place, uh, you know, in the city. But yeah, I mean, if you have, sure. you have these effects that are happening where the dynamics of the city are going to change, right? So you have a, a Facebook and Twitter and MasterCard and Google and yeah. Salesforce telling people like, hey, we're going to uh, decrease our footprint, commercial footprint. Sure. Well, What's the number one reason people come to cities? It's because of jobs. What's the number one reason corporations come to cities? Is because of the talent pool. And one of the, I mean, obviously, New York City is very unique in its talent pool, and that's why all the corporations feel like they have to be here. Sure, there's the culture thing, and New York City is so cool. There's Broadway, and there's music, and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the way cities have been built up for, you know, for at least our generation. Sure. And our yep. 
Absolutely. Now you have this shift that's happening. Now you have this, uh, I mean, outside of the protests and the riots, you have companies like, uh, uh, companies saying like, you know what, I don't need to have my corporation in Manhattan or in New York because it's, uh, I can have, I can get the talent pool anywhere in the world. Mark Zuckerberg was saying that this is actually a good thing for them because the fact that people don't have to come to the office, he can not only reduce their pay that he has to pay them in San Francisco or in New York or wherever they are and have them work from anywhere, pay them less and have a greater reach of talent pool, right? So, so I feel like there's going to be this sort of, uh, displacing of like where companies jobs can be they don't have to be concentrated in the cities so there will be this displacement and it's a it's a positive thing because people still want that urban field they still want to be able to go to a town or a city but it doesn't have to be new york right i feel like it's going to be a great boom for like cities like nashville and austin and you know uh you know uh, just yeah, yeah. really thrive so in in that way some of this stuff is going to get distributed more evenly across the country and not just be strictly in New York. It's bad for New York real estate because whatever has been underwritten in the last five, 10, 15 years has been underwritten in the fact that population is going to grow, people are going to keep making more money, prices are going to keep going up. And now, even if you have a small sort of adjustment in that, all the stuff that's been underwritten for the last five years can't, will not be able to justify that uh, sort of small adjustment. No. Do you have any positive news for us? <laughs> no, I think it's look. There's always opportunity. The other night when I was taping the uh, stuff, there was a guy with a truck, right? He was a guy with a truck with a, a sheet rock and uh, uh, plywood going around and telling the store, "Hey, do you want me to fix this for you right now?" Oh wow! So there is a, there are these guys who are always looking for opportunity, no matter what the situation is. Yeah, that's the. That uh, I thought that was an interesting, very you know. I was like, here's a guy in the middle of the night looking for a you know, job opportunity, which is interesting. But uh, no, I think in those, I think we just have to open our minds and like, you know, I, you know, we always thought real estate is a very local thing. You have to be in New York if you want to sell New York real estate. And uh, I feel like a lot of that is going to be flattened out more, like where there's going to be a lot more sort of uh, brokers working together because people are just going to be moving around like crazy. Right? So just being able to be... And your clients are going to come to you and are like, we're not interested in New York anymore. We want to go to Denver now because for whatever reason, you know, and just having the network and being able to, you know, make a business out of that is good too. You know, there are these people in Houston who would buy these keywords on Street Easy or Zillow and they, were, they had a huge referral business out of Houston in New York. Oh, right? yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that, but so they had this whole business of like advertising to people looking for New York properties and yeah. they were like, Getting the referral on a New York property is better than getting a full commission. In a <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing. Seeing you know the the accidental beneficiary of COVID nineteen is basically that their outer markets outside of Manhattan are benefiting because of the people that are flowing out. Yeah, and, you know, working from home doesn't mean just being you know in the outer markets. Uh, like really, like you could be anywhere, right? Like you could be in Costa Rica. Exactly. As long as you have internet. And you're able to do your job, and doesn't you don't have to be in the tri-state area to do it. And I think just the dynamic of cities is going to shift. What we knew as cities, I think that's going to shift in a way. Because look, if you have a, you're a young guy, you're a good-looking guy, you live in a city, you want to be in and around people. I get that. Once you have two kids and two dogs, and you're like, oh man, now I got to pay a hundred thousand dollars after taxes for my kids to go to school. No, I'd rather be in like. Tennessee or somewhere like with a yard, you, you know, dads don't care. They just want to, they just want to earn a living and go home and eat yeah. their dinner. So you don't have to be in New York in an expensive three bedroom 
or a two bedroom. They could be anywhere, have a house and a yard and still be able to do the job. You know, and once they realize that those jobs are not just exclusive to New York, like those positions doesn't mean you have to be in New York. You could be anywhere to have those positions. Sure. And that's tremendous. Sure. Sure. Uh, when you, when you speak to the, the second part of that question is when you speak to some of these industry leaders, are they happy about this? What, what are they saying? They all complain about the mayor. I don't think yeah. I've talked to a single person. Interesting. On the politics side, like just talking to people in, in government and talking to people in the private sector, not a single person is happy with the mayor. And it, makes, it, it has been a disaster in yeah. every and I think the damage that was done in the last, just not in the last week or month or, you know, just recently, but there's been a lot of damage that was done by this mayor. It's going to take a lot of fixing, you know, like people had their problems with Bloomberg, but look, the number one source of income for cities, the top 22 cities in the United States, the number one source of income is real estate taxes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Take away those taxes. Where, where are people going to go? They're going to, they're going to increase their income taxes or they're going to increase and there's going to be more uh, taxes on bridges and more taxes on tunnels and all this stuff. It's going to come out of people. It's not just going to disappear. You still have to pay for this stuff. Right. So it's uh, you know, it's a shame because they kept increasing the taxes on real estate and real estate was like, okay, fine, fine, do it, do it. But now they put real estate and the landlords and developers in such a place that it's just not even worth it. I talked to so many developers who are saying like, no, I'm looking at places in Ohio. Oh, that Cleveland's going to turn. I'm, I'd rather invest there or like in these other cities. They're just not even, they're not even looking at options in uh, in New York, which is a sad thing. You know? Yeah, it's a sad thing. Um, the, the just, just to add on to that, I think the way the real estate taxes are going to work is, you know, I think the land, landlords are fighting Congress with how they need, they can, they need to be subsidized if, the restaurants or the retail spaces, this is all up in Congress right now, are going to get modified versions of the PPP or the modified versions of bailouts. You actually spoke about this in the real deal recently. You know, yeah, sure. I mean, if the landlords, if the tenants, if these commercial tenants are protected by the government and not being able to get the assets of the restaurateurs as private guarantors, how are the landlords going to save their building? How are they going to pay t- real estate taxes? Everything They're going to take over. Everything has risk. Look, if the the building doesn't mean that the building just crumbles down and falls apart. Somebody else comes in, takes it over, right? And they get it at a much better basis. They lower the rents and newer people come in. And I think this whole thing, this whole calamity with, I think my big belief is that you're going to have a lot more more much more than before, right? So I think that's a positive thing in a lot of ways. And I, yeah, I don't think that the government should just step in. Like I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of a lot of the uh, the bailouts they did in the last couple of months. Sure, so, sure of course. Yeah. But I was prepared not to be. But I had set up my business not to have to rely on the government to mm-hmm. bail me out. But if it was there, I was going to take it. Of course. And this uh, this uh, the idea that like the you know the government should come in and save every business and every industry. I get it. Like you're going to need to like make sure that people keep their jobs and everything doesn't fall apart, but that's not how capitalism works. There's a risk with everything. Right. There's a chance that there, there could be a pandemic. There's a right. chance that there could be a war. Those things exist in every other country. Right. So right. just because it happened here, Oh, nobody, nobody predicted a pandemic. Well, you should have, you know, you should have put money aside for the crazy part to me is that some of these buildings and some of these businesses, they can't sustain for three months on yeah. their own. 
Like yeah. a normal business should have six months, eight months of, you know, revenues. Uh, I mean, uh, you know. Well, I hear restaurants, restaurants are basically just, they're not really a cash rich business. You know, they're, they're month to month. They operate on income and then that's it. There's no real extra cash that restaurants hold. I, I get it. Restaurants are in a tougher position and it's a tough thing. But then the other positive thing about restaurants is that, okay, you lose this restaurant. Doesn't mean you can't have another restaurant ever again. You'll get it. You'll open up another restaurant for less rent with a big, you know, better basis. And you know it's a cycle. Like not not every not everything has to be held up to what it used to be. Sure, like sure. things have to work themselves out. It know? seems like the pain that in the transition is going to be some of the most painful part of just like, for everybody. Like yeah. I don't want like, right now. My traffic has gone through the roof for yeah. sure, but my revenues have come down significantly. Is that all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's for a lot of businesses, but for media, one hundred percent. My revenues have, but you know, we're always prepared for that. We're always prepared for some sort of a something to happen for this to happen. So we always like, you know, plan for that. We're like, as long as we have a good product, as long as the product is good, which is the content that we produce, then there'll always be a market for some, some of it or something, you know, for to create some sort of revenues and generate some sort of a business from it. So we're like, just make sure the product is good and keep, keep your eye on the ball and the revenue part will have to work itself out. We, like for the last three months, I could not care less about my revenues. I, I didn't even want to look at the numbers. because. <laughs> I was like, nothing's going to happen. And I don't blame. You know, it's, what are you going to do? But we just focus on you know, keeping the, uh, the product. Which is right. The right. So that, this leads to my next question is, you know, what, 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 is, what do you see in the real deal in the coming six months for the rest of the year at least? And then do you hope, to, do you hope for things to change in the next year? And what are the, what's the strategy for the real deal going into the future? Well, for the real deal, you know, if, if, it's funny. Five years ago, if I had come to you and said I, I created Dollar of Media, a, a private equity company would value that for five, $6 or $7 of valuation. Today, if I come to you and say, I created dollar of media, they would give me a dollar of valuation. Right? <laughs> so so that, that's how that works. So and we sort of saw that happening because there was a lot of noise out there. right? So, But we were always very niche. We always had a very like good product and we didn't have much competition, which put us in a good place. But still, at the end of the day, well, we were producing this media. And yeah. we shift, shift our strategy Penske is probably listening to this. I shouldn't say anything, but that we shift our strategy where uh, we said, well, look, we have all these people coming to the site. They're loyal. They come on the site 15, 20 times a day. They read every article. Some people just like to consume real estate. Content. Oh, yeah. So we're like, we have these people coming there. Let's forget the media part. Like, let, we'll, we'll take the media, whatever. Like, we'll sell advertising and get sponsorships. But let's, like, what, we have these people here. Let's give them other stuff. Let's give them education. Like, let's give them data. Let's give them research. So that's where we've been focusing on. And uh, we feel like there's a lot of growth in that. Because, like, like at the same private equity company, if I went to them with a dollar's worth of education, that, that's a valuation of 12 to 16 times. So it's a very yeah. high and the same thing for data and research. So a dollar, of, if I can sell a dollar of research, it's worth, you know, possibly 10 to $12. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we're uh, shifting our focus to now. When you talk about education, are you talking about like the YouTube videos that you've been doing, like the coffee talks that you've been doing with developers, or, are you, or is that something yeah. else? Well, so we just became certified in New York City to you're the first person who knows this now. Oh, wow. Thank you. Breaking news. In, uh, in New York, we, we, uh, we just got our certification from the Department of Education to be able to do uh, agent licenses and continuing ed and all that stuff. And we partnered with Kaplan, uh, which is a big uh, education, sort of a of post-education for LSATs and stuff like that. Yeah, of course. So, uh, SATs, yeah, when they were a thing, yeah. 
So we partnered with them to do the basic uh, agent broker stuff on using their backend. And uh, then we were going to supplement it and actually change Cap what Kaplan offers to other schools because they work with a lot of universities and stuff for real estate education. Yeah. And, and what they offered through, with our sort of interviews and supplemented with our, like me talking to a big New York developers and supplementing their studies with what we do at The Real Deal. It would so, be 10 times better than traditional real estate school. 100%. That was the idea. <laughs> I'll tell you that. That was the idea. And like, you know, the stuff that we put in there, like we, we already started doing the videos. We have a guy who owns a vulture fund, one of the largest in the city. Uh-huh. And we talked to him about how he goes after a distressed asset. And he, it, just watching that one hour, it's an hour and 10 minutes. We got to cut it down to under an hour. But just watching that, it like you, it's like learning five years of New York real estate in like one hour. It's incredible. Oh, amazing. I bet. I mean, the, the methods that they use, I mean, this is a, he's a very, you know, the big Blackstone invests with him. He's a legit guy. But in New York, it's a different breed. You just need to be a different kind of a person to yeah. make that kind of business work. And he's that guy, you know, and he's uh, he's very good at it. And it's amazing hearing him for an hour, how he goes after distressed property. It's uh, it's scary and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you heard it here first. That's breaking news. That's great to hear. I'm, 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 I'm very excited to hear more about it once it comes out. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, the idea is to go to all the states, right? We just got uh, approved in New York, which is great. Okay. And then uh, Florida's next. Florida, and Chicago, Illinois. No, uh, Illinois will be last because I have to go in person to uh, pick. I'm the instructor for all oh, of these. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go. Okay. So in New York, because I teach at Columbia, they automatically made me an instructor. Good. Yeah. Good. And in Florida, I, I have... Um, you know, we work with the University of uh, Miami, so that was easy to do. But in California and those places, I have to literally go in person. So I'm going to be doing a tour, just going to different city halls, at, you know, taking the test. Exciting times. That's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, listen, I, I know you're very busy, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of cut to the chase here, have a couple rapid-fire questions um, just for the audience so they can get to know you a little bit better. You know, I've always seen you as a, as a figurehead in the industry, but you're always the one asking all the questions. So uh, just maybe one to two minutes per question. Um, so it, let's see here. Uh, so could, could you, you, the real deal is extremely successful. Uh, obviously it wouldn't have been this successful without the brutal work schedule and the focus uh, that I'm sure you had to endure. Um, what was that like in the beginning for you? You know, there's something that I found out about my body in the first year of the real deal was that I could stay up, not go to sleep for 50 hours. And I never forget this. I remember looking at my clock. I was like, wow, it's Wednesday and I have not gone to sleep. Like, I thought you could like you would just pass out or something would happen. But I stayed up for 50 hours and I didn't go to sleep and I was just working straight through it. No naps. And I, nothing happened. I, I, and of course, I eventually crashed. And I got a terrible flu afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I realized I, I don't have to sleep for 50 hours. And, you know, it's, when I, once I decided to do the real deal, it, was, it became such an easy choice. Like sacrifice, people say sacrifice and compromise. No, you, know, you just do it. It was like I had to do this and I did it. You know, and it was, uh, it was like always, it was a no-brainer for me. I always thought it's really hard if people have to set the alarm and wake up and like, oh my God, I got to do this. I thought I could never start the real deal that way. And I didn't because I, was, I wasn't even thinking like that. You know, I would just, as soon as I would go up, I would turn on the computer and start working, right? And as soon as, if I couldn't sleep, I would turn on the computer and start working. If uh, for some reason I would wake up in the middle of the night, 
I would turn on the computer. I was like, let me get those emails that I didn't get to before. Let me uh, work. How, how long did you, how many days straight can you work 50 hours at a time between sleep? And do you do that? Did you do that for a year? No, that was one time that I did straight up 50 hours, but staying up 24 hours, 28 hours, I did it in the first year. I did it a whole bunch of times. Okay. And the funny thing is that when I produced the movie for PBS on the guy who designed more buildings than anybody else in the history of New York. Uh, Costas I was there for that opening. Oh yeah. Thank yeah. you for coming. There was a, so I remember going to the studio and they were like, Oh yeah, we, you know, we're going to be working on this all day. I was like, no problem. I can do this. And what do you know? I could not pass 24 hours. Like by, by hour 20, I was like on the couch. I, I've gotten fatter and lazier as the years have gone on. Yeah. I guess uh, the, the different folks have different jokes. Um, no, but honestly, if you really want to do something and that's what you, you know, go to sleep thinking about, and that's what you wake up thinking about, uh, then I don't think it's a sacrifice or a compromise or it's hard to stay up for 24 hours. You know, you just do it. Rob Rafkin is just like that when he first started Compass. He would plug into a wall for a few hours and then come back out. <laughs> I could see him doing that. He's a total alpha, that guy. Oh, yeah. He, 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 he was, he, his, work, his work routine uh, inspired all the other younger brokers yeah. and obviously the younger managers and the engineers yeah. to work harder. So it's good. He's to a special him. guy. He's definitely a special guy. Yeah, very, yeah, very special, interesting guy. Uh, another quick question. Uh, some deals are some of our deals are made on the pitch, obviously in real estate, and other businesses as well. Uh, if you could be pitched by one person, who would it be? I gotta tell you, uh, I go and walk job sites with developers all the time. Oh, and yeah. They're some of the best salespeople you meet. But uh, I think one of the best salespeople I've ever met in the business. And I guess? Go ahead. Michael Chavot. Michael Chavot is good. Michael Chavot is very good. But, but, but not in the top two, huh? I, Bob Knackle is okay. a master salesman. Like, I mean, the, the guy's one of the top selling asset brokers in New York City history. Like, in the history of New York, he's one of the top selling asset brokers. And wouldn't you know, to this day, the guy meets with his sales coach once a week. Yeah. The sales coach that he meets with. Like, who's going to teach him what to do? He was like, it's not so much about them teaching me. It's more about somebody just pumping me up, you know, like when you, when you go running with somebody and they're like, come on, you can do it. You got to yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, and that guy, like I go and walk a site with him. I'm like, oh my God, he, I almost wrote him a check and I can't even afford it. <laughs> How did this just happen, you know? But he's, he's just great. He's a master salesperson. Okay. Who's, who's the second guy you said? He's, you, you... Uh, Andrew Heiberger. Andrew oh Heiberger. yeah. Classic. Those guys I've seen too. That guy's. uh, He's very good. I mean, he he, com he comes with such an authority on his position of his sales pitch that you're like, wow, I, I feel like I have to listen to him or I'm stupid, you know? Yeah. If, I don't, if I don't buy this place, I, I, I could be making the greatest mistake of my life, you know? Yeah. He, he's also very good. Where, where does, uh, we just talked about him, but where does Refkin come in? He's up there too? Yeah. Refkin's very good too, but Refkin's more of a, you know, he's a company man. He's an executive, right? He, like, I don't, I don't see him going there, grinding, you know, showing listings and saying, look at, Window. No, no, no. He's not like that, but he can sell Compass very well. He the best. I mean, he recruits. He's still recruits. The amount of money he raised, he changed the residential firm game permanently. And yeah. you know, a lot of people fault him for his approach and stuff like that. But at the same time, he brought the valuation of a lot of those companies a lot higher than what they were. I mean, not now, but at the time. Like, if Compass can be worth a billion, then all of a sudden. Douglas Elliman, which was which thought it was worth like 120 million, is worth 300 million. You exactly. Know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and what app can you not live without? 
What app? Uh, oh, that's uh, the real deal app. Is very <laughs> good. <laughs> there you go. Shameless yeah. plug. That's all good. Uh, I, I love. Um, I mean, my Google Assist app. I, I'm a Google guy, so I have a Google yeah. Pixel and all that. And uh, you know, I, I'm talking to it half the day. Every time I need facts, hey Google, how long does it take to get okay. to you know? So in some place, it's it's. So I use that a lot. Okay, good, good. All right, and then uh, final question: uh, What was the best piece of advice you've been given in your history of your your professional career? I'm sorry, could you repeat? Oh yeah, what was that? What was the best piece of advice that was given to you during your history of your career? I remember uh, this guy. He's he's not a big guy, but he he just told he was an older guy, and he was like, Amir, like. Everything you want to do, do it now before your hair turns gray. Because the older you get, the harder it gets to do things. The harder it gets to wake up, the harder it gets to get over a hangover. Everything gets harder and harder. So right now you're burden-free. So just whatever you want to do, do it now. Until like until you literally can't just keep pushing and pushing and do uh, you know going through. And I, I always loved that mentality. I loved the mentality. That, and it always made me feel young. You know, like I'm 46 years old now. And... I always uh, felt like I got to I got to push through now. Now's the time to do it. I can't do it later, you know. You know, we have people come through our office, uh, you know, for jobs, and you see it. You know, you see this shift happening where uh, you know some of the older people are getting sort of they're getting pushed out of the oh yeah yeah out of the industries, and you see it. And I there's uh, even though they come with all this wisdom and they come with all this knowledge. Uh, the hiring managers have changed. The questions that people ask during these interviews have changed. So unless they're going into some sort of executive level job, like regular everyday jobs, I feel like a lot of older people are getting pushed out of it. And it's, and it's a, you know, it, you don't want that. You don't want that. And I feel like now, you know, with a lot of these newer companies and especially with what happened now, I feel like that, that age is going to keep dropping down. You know, it's, it's going to be it's, before it was like the person who was like 65, 70, sure. you know, maybe 50, 55. I don't know. And, a scary thought, scary thought, but your hair is great. Uh, it's not going to go great anytime soon. So uh, you have, you have many, many years left. To continue. I feel like I said a lot of things in this uh, podcast. that's going to get me into big trouble. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, uh, again, if you're listening, you can follow Amir on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle, Mr. Karangi, M-R-K-O-R-A-N-G-Y. Uh, uh, obviously, follow The Real Deal on Instagram as well. Uh, that's where I get a lot of my breaking news updates from The Real Deal. Uh, obviously, I'm on your website about five times a day anyway, but I still get I still like reading the comments. Uh, you, your comment section disappeared in the real deal, so I'd le- I, I like to read them in the Instagram post. Right, right, right. But <laughs> yeah, I know that we got so many complaints. And <laughs> it, was not, and it was not worth it. It was just not worth it. And like we had a stupid article about a park, some park that opened. There would be like 300 comments under it, and people would complain. And oh my god, it was not worth yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. But I still like reading the comments on the Instagram. Yeah, post. So follow them on Instagram if you haven't. Amir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope to see you soon in person. Come by our new office. Uh, we have a bunch of them, but come by our office. Hopefully, we'll see you around there. And uh, and the next, after post-COVID, you do your next Real Deal event. I'm there as well. I'm excited and I can't, I can't wait to come back. Thank you. All right, everyone. Yes. Take care. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.
Oh, oh, oh. 